Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines wanderlust as a strong desire to travel. Join us and let's discover the world. I'm Kesey. And I'm Brian. And we're your KI Home and Away Upscale Travel Advisors. You can find us and all of our contact information at kihomeandaway.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. But we're not here to sell you a deluxe vacation package. We just want to have fun and talk travel. So come relax with us and enjoy Wonderless. On today's episode, we're talking to Rick Wolfel, golf historian, writer, and podcaster, and we're covering the Seaview Resort near Atlantic City. All right, how are you doing today? Good morning, Reticia. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right, so what can you tell me about this CV resort? It's a resort that has an awful lot of history to it. It is over 100 years old Mm -hmm. and has two wonderful golf courses that are open to the public, which I think is impressive in this day and age that the public has access to two golf courses of this quality and they're on the same property. So for somebody who is a golf enthusiast, Seaview is a wonderful place to stay uh, for golf reasons and for other reasons as well. Mm-hmm. And how do you rate the quality of a golf course? Because I don't know a lot about golf. My family plays in my mom's house is actually directly across the street from a golf course, but I'm not sure how to tell one great one from the other. Well, that will let me get on a little bit of a, ro- a roll here. Certainly, there are great golf courses that have hosted major tournaments mm-hmm. and are very challenging and very demanding. That's one definition of a great golf course, one that has an outstanding design and has stood up to the test of time. But for the golfer who is the recreational player, or the golfer who enjoys taking golf trips with friends or business colleagues. I think one of the key factors is a course that is challenging, but also playable. And sometimes that's a hard balance to strike. There are great golf courses, highly regarded golf courses, that are challenging but are very difficult for the average player to play because of their difficulty. Mm -hmm. And there is a difference between a golf course being great and just being hard. They can be both, but there are golf courses out there that are considered great when in reality they're just very, very difficult Mm -hmm. for the average player to deal with. Or below average player like me. There are a lot of golf balls around the country in inaccessible places that belong to me. Someday I'm going to go out and search for them. (laughs) I like that. I like it. So the two that we're talking about today, what are their names? Or is it just all under the Seaview Resort umbrella? They are both on the Seaview property, but they are two distinct golf courses. Uh, One of them is the Bay Course, Mm -hmm. which is the course that the LPGA competes on every year. 
with the ShopRite LPGA Classic. That tournament traditionally is held right after Memorial Day. The last couple of years, it's been held in the fall because the LPGA has adjusted its schedule because of COVID. Mm-hmm. But the Bay Course dates back to 1914, the same year the resort opened. Mm-hmm. It was designed by Donald Ross, one of the greatest golf course architects in history. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was assisted in the project by a gentleman named Hugh Wilson, who, for the golf enthusiasts in your audience, they are probably aware he designed the courses at Marion Golf Club, which has been the scene of a lot of golf history through the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Bay Course sits on the east side of... U.S. Route 9 in uh, the Atlantic City area. It's actually across the street from the hotel and the bulk of the resort and then plays out toward Reeds Bay, which is adjacent to Atlantic City. And while the course isn't overly long, it is challenging for professionals such as the LPGA Tour players, Mm. but it's also very manageable for the high-handicap player the vacationer, the person that just wants to play a casual round of golf. I don't have a situation where you're hitting over ponds or creeks or whatever. Uh, It is a fairly wide open golf course, although depending on the time of the year, they let the fescue grow now and again. But uh, you are, there is room to spray your ball around Mm -hmm. Uh, It is manageable if you're not a terribly long hitter. So you can go out on that golf course and have a a relaxing day or relaxing afternoon. And while you may not shoot a great score, it is a demanding golf course. You don't feel as though you are completely overwhelmed, Mm -hmm. which happens at some golf courses. Uh, So that course is the oldest course at the resort. Uh, The other course, called the Pines, is on the other side of the street. Mm -hmm. It is actually behind the hotel. And this course was created as a nine-hole course in 1927 by uh, two gentlemen, William Flynn and Howard Toomey, who, as a team, designed a number of wonderful golf courses over the course of their careers, most of which was in the... 1910s and 20s. Uh, It was originally a nine-hole course. Uh, It was expanded to 18 holes later on, around 1957. And then uh, a few years later, around 1990, uh, part of the course was revised because the actual hotel was expanded. They added a new wing onto the hotel So in order to make that work, they had to get rid of a couple of holes on the Pines course and Mm -hmm. rebuild them. So that was completed, oh, been around 30 years now. Mm -hmm. But what you have is an 18-hole course, which is quite different from the Bay course. While the Bay course is quite open, there are not a lot of trees, uh, so the wind is a factor there. Pines course is essentially cut out of the woodlands, cut out of the forest on that side of the property. So you get a quite different uh, atmosphere, if you will. But both of them are 
wonderful golf courses and, and very well maintained. So if you're somebody who is looking for a quality golf experience, but you want some variety to it, uh, it's a very nice option. I like that. And do you, so you cover the LPGA, do you cover at one course and play at the other, or do you like playing on either one as well? I cover the LPGA when I come to Atlantic City. I also do a fair amount of work about the LPGA Tour and about women's golf. A lot of that remotely. Mm -hmm. Uh, I will get to their event in Atlantic City every year, depending on what their schedule sets up. If there's another tournament or two that is relatively nearby, I will get to that. I got to the U.S. Women's Open Mm -hmm. in 2017 when it was played at... uh, Trump National in Bedminster, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And I've been to the one in uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania in 2015 mm-hmm. and a couple of others. Uh, as far as choosing one over the other, for me, the Bay Course is probably more manageable. Yeah. That said, having two golf options at the same resort is an advantage for a number of reasons. You get the variety. Also, it eliminates some of the backup in play because both courses are quite busy. So if you just have the one, it would be a little bit overwhelming in terms of trying to get a tee time and and that kind of thing. The other thing that is, is nice about Seaview is if you are looking for variety, and a lot of golfers are, there are probably a dozen or more quality golf courses within a relatively short drive, say within a half hour's drive of Seaview. So if you're going to be taking a trip to the Atlantic City area and your focus is going to be on golf, if you want to play a different course every day, you can do that. And that's how a lot of golfers think when they go on a trip. They don't want to play the same golf course every day. Uh, they want to they want to travel a little bit. They're looking for places that offer some variety to them, and they're also looking for a situation where they can stay in one hotel mm-hmm. for the entire trip. Uh, my best friend and I uh, regularly take golf trips, and particularly in more recent years, we're looking for destinations where we can stay in the same place every night if we're going to go away for a three- or a four-day trip. Uh, we like to have a destination where there are golf courses close enough where we don't have to change hotels every night. That makes perfect sense. And then you were also saying earlier that not only do you have the golf resort in the surrounding golf courses uh, within driving distance, but you also have Atlantic City right there if you like to go and gamble. So I think that's a a way to make it a trip for everyone or a trip where you can do multiple things as well. That's true. Atlantic City is probably about a 20-minute drive depending on traffic. Uh, so if you want to go into Atlantic City to gamble or to see a show or to go to the beach, uh, that's within a 20-minute drive. If you want to go a different direction and go to a community that 
uh, does not offer gambling, but it's a good family resort. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got a number of shore towns that are going south a few miles in a different direction. I'm thinking about Ocean City, where you know I've been on, on a number of occasions. Uh, Ocean City is a dry town, rather unique in this day and age, but mm-hmm. it always has been. But it is the classic family resort, and you've got the beaches. Uh, if there are non-golfers in your group who are first-rate shoppers, uh, <laughs> Ocean City is also a great place to shop. Atlantic City is not. So there's a lot of uh, variety there yeah. and, uh, for golfers and non-golfers alike. Uh-huh. I like that. Have you looked at the resort and saw, um, like, have you done a tour of the CV Resort at all? I have uh, seen a good part of the resort. I personally have not stayed there. Mm-hmm. And it is an old time resort. The atmosphere that you get is something out of, say, the middle portion of the 20th century or mm-hmm. even earlier than that. If you walk in through the lobby, you will get uh, an overview. If you look on the walls of some of the golf events that have been held there, some of the famous people who have played there, including President Warren Harding, who was something of a, a golf fanatic, mm-hmm. uh, has played golf there. Uh, there are three restaurants on the property. It's not as luxurious by today's standards, certainly, as, as some others, but it is fairly large. There are 296 rooms on the property. Mm-hmm. There are three restaurants. And if your group is looking for a place to have a convention or have a meeting, uh, there are a number of meeting facilities on the property, as well as 16 guest suites and an indoor pool. So, you know, it is designed as a golf resort. There's also tennis available as well. Mm -hmm. But it is a place that is uh, convenient, and if you're the kind of person that wants to be able to do everything in one place, have your meeting, have some recreation time, or just relax, you can do all that at uh, Seaview. I like that. Just breaking off of that, how did you get into being a golf historian? Because I've actually, I don't know why I've never heard of it, but I've never heard of that before. Well, there's a couple of things that that connect with that. I had covered some golf back when I was doing radio for a living, you know, golf in the Philadelphia area, which is home, and covered uh, some local events there. Uh, what got me taking it a little bit more seriously was when I attended my first LPGA event, uh, an event that doesn't exist anymore, the McDonald's Classic. Mm-hmm. But that was something like 35 years ago mm-hmm. and just was really taken by the whole atmosphere and how accommodating the players were uh, to deal with. Yeah. And then later on in my career, I went to work for a chain of weekly newspapers. I was a sports writer, and the company had a golf newspaper. Mm-hmm. So the editor came to me and said, would I like to try writing a couple of golf stories? It'll pay you a little extra money. Well, if you're working for 
a chain of weekly newspapers, when somebody offers you extra money to do something, you, you do it. <laughs> and wrote a couple of stories, which the editor liked, and then got into writing histories of golf courses, historical pieces that wouldn't be starting from scratch, because a lot of clubs have historical material available. Mm -hmm. So I wrote one or two of those for the editor, a gentleman named Fred Beringer, who became a longtime friend and mentor up until the end of his life. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, how would you like to do one of these every month? Mm -hmm. So it started from there. And golf is a sport that, more than most professional sports, really reveres and protects its history. I would say golf, baseball, and ice hockey, in no particular order, are the three that really do the most to protect their history, to make sure it doesn't get lost. Right. And that can happen if you're not careful in any human endeavor. Right. That history can get lost in the midst of time. And once that happens, it's very hard to recover it, whether you're talking about literary history or history of music or art or sports. It doesn't matter. Uh, you have to make an effort to retain that kind of material, or somebody has to. Or it gets lost and sometimes it's not recoverable. And fortunately, golf has uh, done a good job. The people in the industry have done a good job of preserving all that history. And golf's history goes back a long, long way. You know, back into the modern game, goes back to the 1800s. But there was a version of golf being played as far back as the 15th century. Really? In what is now St. Andrews, Scotland, there was okay. golf being played at that site even back in the 1400s. So that, that kind of appealed to me. And then the vast majority of people that you deal with in the golf industry are very upstanding people. They are passionate about their sport or their profession, whatever it happens to be. And they're good people to be around and work with. And they were wonderful about teaching me things about the history of the sport. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are a lot of people that can either take credit for or be held responsible for whatever success I've had mm -hmm. uh, writing and talking about the sport. It's mm -hmm. been, there are other things that I do along with that. Golf is not my full-time profession, mm -hmm. writing profession, but it's something I take a lot of satisfaction in. I love that. And then you do podcasting as well. I do a couple of golf podcasts. Mm -hmm. One is devoted to women's golf. Another one, which I do for a magazine called Golf Course Industry, uh, is about the women who help take care of golf courses. Golf course superintendents um, are in a very specialized, very demanding field. Mm -hmm. And there are not a lot of women in that field. There are only, probably only about 2% of the membership of the Golf Course Superintendents Association is female. Gotcha. And this podcast got started last year. Uh, golf Course Industry came up with the idea and we kicked it around. And uh, we started last year with six 
different episodes on a bi-monthly basis of people, women who are involved in the turf industry in some form or fashion. Mm -hmm. Uh, This year, with the help of a grant from the United States Golf Association, it has been expanded to 12, so we're doing one every month. In fact, as we are taping this podcast uh, with you, uh, there's another episode that is scheduled to drop, I believe it is, tomorrow. That's amazing. And where can people find that episode? Uh, If they go on the Golf Course Industry website... And uh, just Google golf course industry, mm-hmm. and uh, they will come up with uh, with that. The podcast is titled Wonderful Women of Golf. So I think the best way to access it is just Google Wonderful Women of Golf, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it will come up. As they say, a new episode every month, and there are some, some truly remarkable stories uh, that I've been able to tell. And one of the things that I get the most satisfaction from as far as writing goes is being able to help people tell their stories. People that maybe have been in the shadows Mm -hmm. because of the nature of their profession. Uh, It may be a situation where people have judged them for some reason because of their gender, because of their religion, whatever. it is very satisfying for me to help those individuals tell their stories. I like that. And I did Google Wonderful Women of Golf, and your podcast came right up at the top. What's interesting Good. is... Somebody's paying attention. <laughs> What's interesting is that you talk about celebrating the women for what they do. And as I scroll through, once we get past your podcast, it goes straight to the hottest women in golf and the sexiest women in golf and the most beautiful women in golf. So I appreciate the fact that you are highlighting more of what they do and not, you know, beauty and things like that. That's awesome. Well, I'll tell, when we put the, we started the idea of this podcast and Guy Cipriano, the editor at Golf Course Industry, and I have been talking about this for a while. And part of the thought process was, do we, could they get a sponsor? Uh, GIE Media covers, um, puts out a number of magazines and various topics, mm-hmm. and golf course industry being one of them. So finally he said, okay, you know, whether we find a sponsor or not, this is something we ought to do, so let's just do it. And the way I have always approached it is we are not doing stories on female superintendents, if you will. Mm-hmm. We are doing them about superintendents who happen to be female. Right. That's different. Right. And I know you understand the difference, and hopefully the audience does too here. Uh, but that is the way we have approached it. Uh, I think people are responding to that. Mm-hmm. And it's the way that, that... It's what I feel comfortable with, and I'm not looking for a pat on the back for that. It's just the way that I think it ought to be done. And I'm Absolutely. a little bit stubborn about doing things the way I think they should be done. Absolutely. And it's gotten me into some trouble <laughs> on more than one occasion in my career. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I remember the first uh, installment we did, the first episode was with a woman who is a superintendent at a relatively small club out in uh, Illinois. Mm-hmm. And 
we, you know, the fact that she's a woman is really irrelevant to how she does her job with a small staff and limited budget at this time of the year. It's just herself and one other employee in the turf department. That's Ooh. it, two people. Gotcha. And, you know, going through what she has experienced and how she got into the profession. And it ended up being a very enjoyable episode to do. That was the first episode uh, that kicked off the series last February. Mm-hmm. And that is sort of the position that we've taken and the tone that we've set since then. And uh, I want to continue doing it that way. I love it. I absolutely love it. All right. I am going to put your um, your podcast information in the description box so people can find you. Uh, and if you have any more information that I can plug in there so people can find you, I will get that from you and have that listed in there as well. All right. I will send that to you, if not later today, then tomorrow. I'm actually, in fact, uh, covering high school hockey right now and uh, dealing <laughs> Dealing, I just loaded a podcast this morning for that. So yeah, all right. I may have so, to call you back for other sports uh, locations as well. Be be glad to to do that. All right. Thank you for coming on today, and uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Bye.